I personally am fascinated by Japanese cuisine because every prefecture is a different universe. Very few cultures dedicate themselves so deeply into one thing, doing one thing perfectly for multiple generations, and it's amazing to me. Welcome to Homemade. I'm Marty Duncan. This podcast is all about eating, cooking, family, and tradition. It's the stories we tell and the memories we make in the kitchen. And it's also about learning how to improve your cooking. And that starts with technique. Today is all about bacon, 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 bacon. I'm going to teach you how to cook bacon like chefs do. And the new chef word you're going to learn is sandbagging. If I ever catch you buying bacon trays for the microwave or ready-made bacon or warm to eat bacon, I'm going to come through this camera and punch you in the face. My guest today is a Food Network star. You've seen him on Beat Bobby Flay, Guy's Grocery Games, and Guy's Ranch Kitchen. And you probably also saw him battle Morimoto on Iron Chef. He is a legend in culinary TV. And it all started in his grandmother's kitchen. Welcome to Homemade Chef Jet Tila. Wow, what an intro. Marty, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, we're so excited to have you. You know, this is a show that helps us all to, you know, kind of learn about other people and other cultures. And the main reason I wanted to ask you to be a guest on the show was when I heard you talk about storytelling through food. And I said, oh, I got to have Jed on. I mean, that's so important to me, too. So you're Thai by way of China. So Chinese descent. Your parents came to America from Thailand. And as I understand it, you're the first family of Thai food here in America. Your family started one of the very first (laughs) Thai restaurants and Thai groceries in, well, in California for sure. But I think in the United States, is that right? Yeah, I think it's a good story that I think people should know. I mean, the story of Thai food in America. And the summary is basically this. 1966, there was the first large immigration of Thai people into the States and they landed in Los Angeles, California. And so my family was in that first generation of Thai people. And we started the first official Thai grocery store in the history of America. We started some of the first Thai restaurants. If you've ever been to an ethnic market or a mom and pop restaurant, I was the kid bouncing, either doing homework or washing dishes or yeah, that was it. So I've worked every single position from age three until age 16 in grocery stores, restaurants. We were in the agriculture business, so I spent a lot of time in Central California and down in Mexico. At the time, it was miserable. I mean, let's just be real. We can romanticize it all we want, but when you're a child of a family business of immigrants, you work in that 24 hours a day. So I really didn't understand how lucky I was probably until my late teens. I talked to Marcus Samuelson a little bit about that, too. He said in his interview that when he would go to his grandmother's house, he would go with the full-on knowledge that he was there to work in the kitchen. 100%. He loved it, but he said it really wasn't until much later they understood what that brought to his life now. Yeah. Labor laws do not apply to blood. So there's no such thing as child labor in uh, when you're when you're when you're talking about your kids. So I think it's good for the kids. I gotta say, we all started working. We we're really young, and I don't think it hurt us at all. 
The work ethic must be learned and it must be modeled. But no matter what you do in this career, culinary or any career, the only way you're going to become anything is to work your butt off. And then some. And then some. You know, and it it hurts. Yeah, work, work your butt off and do it again yeah. and again. And again, yeah. oh yeah, it's not easy. People come up to me a lot of times and say, oh, I remember you from TV and that, that looked like so much fun. I said, I'm glad it looked like fun because it was hard. Exactly. It was really hard. It was fun in a way, but very hard. Okay, which brings me to a couple of questions about your family before we get into the cooking and the shows and the whammies. And I want to hear about, okay, so you're married, mm-hmm. you have children. Are your kids growing up in the kitchen like you did? Are they cooking? with you? Are they learning and helping? You know, I married a phenomenal woman who is a, a special ed teacher who loves to cook more than I do, by the way. I mean, all you have to do is check out our social to see that. So yes, our children are cooking with us, but in a very different context than when I grew up. Again, having food businesses was one thing, but we cook probably a good 50% of our meals at home every week. Uh, we have a very traditional family and we do a lot of cooking. Allie does all the baking and the desserts. So yes, it's a little different because we're not closing shop at 11 p.m. and they're asleep on the banquet and we're scooping them up. But absolutely, the tradition continues. I'm happy for them to do whatever they want. But for right now, while they're in our house, cooking is one of the threads that weaves us together. What would a weeknight meal look like in your kitchen for you and Allie and the kids? What would you make? I'll look in the freezer and pull out some steaks maybe. And Allie will uh, make a, like a budino or she'll bake oh. some like soda bread to start. And she might whip up the salad when I'll do the proteins. She'll do the, some of the starters. And another night could be making Asian food. I make fried rice quite a bit because it's a very practical, delicious, also good a teaching dish. And I've got some ingredients right now to make mole. We grew up in LA. Both Ali and I are native Angelinas. I'm really proud of that fact. And one of the reasons we are is because we grew up in these pockets that are so culturally diverse that it's not an influence when you grow up. It's just a thing you grow up in. So like Southern food for me, I that's exactly completely right. understand what you're saying. So you do culinary tours in Thai town and that's how you kind of got your springboard into food TV, right? Through that opportunity to take Anthony Bourdain around Thai town. Oh man. Yeah. I'm trying to give you the summary. Cause again, I, I could write books about the stories in 1998. I was leaving culinary school and my first job was at the LA times. And, and this will circle back to Thai town. I was a culinary intern. I got to write articles and test recipes. Part of my beat obviously was to bring Thai food into this amazing periodical that I worked at. I suggested to our editor that we do a holiday party in Thai town and Thai town didn't exist yet. We were officially recognized in the year 2000. So I told Russ Parsons and we did this dinner in Thai town. And he said, this is a thing jet. Like you need to write about it and talk about it. So Thai town gets officially recognized in the year 2000. Do you know who Heel Hauser is Marty? No, I don't think so. He's a local PBS legend in Los Angeles. He, He hosted these, California, like, you know, you didn't know this about Cali or you didn't know this about Los Angeles. And if you go to YouTube, I think the year 2000 is 20 year old clip of me taking Hill Hauser through Thai town. And he had a big following on the West coast. 10 years later, this Thai town tour, Thai town gets really big. And then I start taking big VIPs, people who come through LA that could have been through the Thai government, or that could have just been culinarians. 
because of my exposure in the LA Times, I knew a lot of local chefs. So I became kind of the local tour guide for them. That goes national later in the 2000s, Anthony Bourdain through Jonathan Gold, actually. Bourdain says, Gold, take me through Thai Town. And Gold says, no, I'm not the guy. Jet T was the guy. That was your intro. You'd already gone to culinary school. You had already worked in your family businesses all these years and mm-hmm. kind of rebelled and said, man, I don't want to be any part of this and then changed your mind and decided, you know what, I want to be a part of this. So I need to get my act together and, and get the education I need to support myself. So you went to culinary school. You went to Le Cordon Bleu. So you studied traditional French cooking to That's correct. infuse with what you'd already learned in your Thai grandmother's kitchen. Now you're working at a paper, developing recipes, and that was your springboard to television, that episode with which one did you do with Bourdain? Yeah, No Reservations The first LA. one. No yeah, Reservations the LA, the first, first one. And uh, that was my big springboard into kind of national television. But weren't you doing cooking classes in your backyard at one point? And ha- aren't you kind of doing those now with these virtual hangouts and cooking classes? Isn't that amazing how in 22 years everything comes back? So pre-culinary school, I'm working at my family's grocery store. And I have this group of really great regulars that are non-Asian. How do I make pad thai? How do I make this? How do I make all the Thai favorites? So I would verbally tell them and then I would give them a recipe. And they're like, hey, do a cooking class. And I'm like, who the heck would come to a cooking class? Well, flash forward to the LA. This is pre-LA Times. So Barbara Hansen, who had the uh, ethnic beat at the LA Times for 30-something years, who is a mentor and a friend, back then was just this revered writer. I just put these little post-it note notifications at these little grocery store in East Hollywood. She comes in and she writes an article about these little cooking classes that I was giving, and it made the front page of the LA Times. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this little kid out of his backyard, you know, and that prompted me to go to culinary school because I knew what I knew. I know Asian food. I know Thai food and Chinese food really well. But one thing that's fascinating about culinary school, the the, the French, as you know, they've formalized every technique, every tool, every method. So going to French culinary school really taught me how to speak another language, right? Use Asian cuisine, but I can say, well, it's very similar to a roux. It's very similar to the stock. It's very similar to textures. And so that's how all those things connect. Well, that brings me to your cookbooks. You have two cookbooks. One is Mm -hmm. Asian dishes. 101 Asian dishes you need to cook before you die. So morbid. It was so cool at the time. No, I like it. No, we have this thing in Alabama, 100 dishes to eat in Alabama before you die. But the funny thing was that when the first year that they put it out, I shouldn't tell this, but I'm going to. The first year they put it out, it was titled The 100 Dishes You Should Eat Before You Die in Alabama. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, so there it is, you know? Yeah. So they had to rename it, but I always loved it. And people are like, that's a bucket list for people. It's great. But your next book is not just Asian dishes, it's all kinds of food. And you and Allie did that one together, right? Yeah. So Allie, like I told you, she was a teacher for many years. And through my career since the 90s, I've always moonlighted as a teacher. Although I don't have credentials like she does or master's degrees, storytelling and teaching has been a very very natural part of what I do. I can see that. And we wanted to do a book that wasn't Asian because I don't want to teach someone how to cook a recipe. I want to teach them a, a technique. And then they could take that technique across recipes. That's also a play on words. 101 is like school 101. I didn't get it, but thank you. Sometimes yeah. <laughs> a little slow on the uptake. Okay, of that 101 tips and techniques and recipes, give us a couple of important Jetila tips for cooking. Well, on the Asian side, I think stir fry is such a universally loved 
and not really understood concept. So I break down surf and I tell you, you don't need a walk. Uh, you need a pan that's at least nine to 11 inches wide. And you need at least sides that come up two to four inches. And you need to get that thing screaming hot and don't use olive oil, use a neutral oil and order of operations and knife cuts are crucial. So I take you through that. And I really talk about how Asian food is really just balancing five flavors. It's hot, sour, salty, sweet, savory. And within each country, when you understand the ingredients that apply to hot, sour, salty, sweet, it's like a paint palette. Hot, hot, hot sour, sour, salty, sweet, savory, or umami. Savory. That's it. So the Thai okay. palette is fish sauce for salt and palm sugar for sweet and sriracha for spicy and sour. Whereas when I get into Chinese now, you're, you're into soy sauce bill, vinegar, chili garlic sauce. And if you're in Japan, you're in a different kind of soy sauce. Mirin is... So again, I'm just teaching you the paints in the different countries and teaching you how to blend them all together. You're a big fan of chili paste, aren't you? Uh, I like hot. Uh, it's messing with me as I get older, but I, I've always liked hot. Tell us a little bit how we could incorporate chili paste into a favorite dish. Yeah. You know, we all know sriracha, you know, the rooster kind right. of, you know, do a little deep dive on the interweb and you'll find that sriracha is a province in Thailand. And like champagne, if you can track down true sriracha, it's a very different flavor profile. So at the base level, incorporating hot, again, chilies, right? Clean hot is chilies. Most chili sauces contain vinegar or some kind of sugar, so it skews with your palate. We're all trying to find balance in our cooking. Just know if this chili is chili or is it chili vinegar or is it chili vinegar and sugar? And then you'll understand how it all plays together. You're listening to Homemade. When we come back, Chef Tila walks us through his go-to, the stir fry, and we also talk soups. We'll be right back after the break. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. I'm Marty Duncan, and my guest today is Chef Jet Tila. So if I'm going to cook, let's say I want to do a quick 30-minute 15, 20 minute thing for the family. Mm -hmm. So you're saying stir fry would be my go-to. I would say stir fry for sure. And I could teach you Thai stir fry, Chinese stir fry really quickly. Then teach me a Thai stir fry really quick. Pick a protein. We'll do it really quick. Uh, chicken. You got it. So I would take the chicken, slice it really thin. I would add onions, bells, and get basil. I don't care if it's Thai basil. I prefer that. But if you got Italian basil, your balance of flavors now is Fish sauce for salt and umami. Okay. You've got sugar, just regular old sugar. And then uh, if you, yeah, so you already have your fish sauce, your sugar and garlic and chili and you're done. So that's 
I've just taught you spicy basil stir fry, which is just a very simple street food. That could be chicken breast, that could be ground chicken, that could be beef. So I just taught you a really fast Thai staple stir fry. To go to Chineseville, switching out your fish sauce for oyster sauce, because that is the fundamental, not soy sauce for stir fry. Okay. If you took oyster, which has sweet, savory, and salty in it already, one bottle, all that. And then uh, that would be one fundamental stir fry. Just oyster sauce by itself with garlic and chicken, the same ingredients, different sauces or different flavor profiles. So I feel like this is a part of the reason you do so well on the cooking shows, because you're able to swap out ingredients in your head based on flavor profiles that you've yeah. developed. That makes sense to me now because uh, you, you do really well on all these shows. So you've been on Grocery Games. You've been on The Ranch Kitchen with Guy. Beat Bobby Flay as a judge. Chopped as a judge. But you've also competed on a lot of these shows, not just Iron Chef with Morimoto. I just, wait a minute. I just, oh I God. have to ask, was that not just absolutely terrifying? I was really young and it was the scariest thing in my life. Morimoto's imposing. Yeah, it was the most thrilling thing in my life. And, and then again, when you talk about television, those pivotal moments, Bourdain won. Morimoto too. Those were your two big moments. I know you're also tight with Bobby Flay and you're tight with Alton Brown too. Yeah, very. Yeah, but you surround yourself with people who are geniuses in the food that they do. But I can tell just from talking to you about the way you're swapping out those ingredients that this is why you're very good at that. Well, game, you're very at those games. Okay, so what was the worst whammy that guy ever gave you? What was the worst thing he ever made you do? I love his whammies. I think they're so fun. You know, I've never won guys' grocery games. And it doesn't matter that I've got this encyclopedic mind for food. It's totally different when you're in a moment. So the hardest game for me to answer your question is when you only can shop the center of the aisle and you don't give me produce or fresh I don't know how to do that. I just, I've never done it. I would tell your fans to watch this next season of Delivery for some fun surprises. I saw a little bit of that. That looks so much fun. Can you tell us, just give us a hint about that? During the lockdown, when y'all want to try to keep things going, tell us what you guys came up with. So Guy and Hunter, Guy and Hunter Fietti came up with this really genius but diabolical game where they loaded ingredients up from the store ship it to our doorstep and we have to battle each other via zoom and guy still is imposing games and whammies on us uh you know it was a really brilliant game and another thing i love about it as a viewer is i get to see into antonio's kitchen and house i get to see michael i get to see justin's house so it's almost like cribs meets food TV, because you get a little insight. You know, I didn't think about it that way, but you're exactly right. I wish I could have done that one. It looks so fun. I'm going to tell Guy I want in for the next one. Absolutely. It's a great, it's a great show. Yeah, I just thought hey, they're ingenious when it comes to thinking of fun, new, exciting food things to challenge, not just all of us, but the viewers too. Yeah. You know, they make it so much fun. All right. You're out in L.A., if you and your family go on a holiday, where do you like to go? Like, I know right now we're not getting to travel very much, but where do y'all like to go? And what's your favorite food city? We really love Hawaii as a family. I got to be honest with you. Why not? Oh, so yeah, exactly. amazing. We have everything we want there. And, you know, we've got Leonard's with the Malasadas. We've got Kono's. Again, I love Hawaii because it's very representative of 
the diversity of Asian cultures as it pertains to America. That's true. You've got plate lunch, you've got the Japanese influence, you've got this Cantonese influence and the dim sum, you've got the Portuguese. So And the spam. The spam is delicious. Don't forget spam. about the spam. If we were unlimited resources, we'd probably have a house in Japan because I personally am fascinated by Japanese cuisine. Every prefecture is a different universe. And, you know, there's very few cultures that, dedicate themselves so deeply into one thing, doing one thing perfectly for multiple generations. And it's amazing to me. I think Allie would say Europe if she had her pick, but Spain, there you go. I love Spain as well. And it's a similar type thing to what you're saying. 100%. Generations and generations developing recipes and ways of cooking things that are passed down from family member to family member to family member. And that's part of what we want to do with this show is to kind of keep some of these family traditions going so that we don't lose all of them. Tell me about cooking in the kitchen with your grandmother. Yeah, I'm going to give you the real answer, you know, I mean, uh, and not the romanticized answer. Although, so she absolutely was the most formidable influence in my cooking life, for sure. So at about the age of three, I had a lot of intentional issues as a child. I was a very difficult child. And she, I think, understood that I'm not going to learn much from books and math and reading. So she stuck me in the kitchen with her right next to her hip at three years old and just focused all that crazy energy I had into tasks. So peel this, cut this, taste this, and then peeling becomes cutting, cut this, and that becomes cooking this. And we would have field trips every day. She was my primary caregiver for a long time. And we'd get on the bus to Chinatown and we'd eat dim sum. We'd go to grocery shopping and she'd play mahjong for a few hours. And then we'd come home and we'd dinner together. Wonderful. And over the course of thousands of meals and thousands of lessons, she was also a natural teacher. She's mean as heck, by the way, which all the things I really need, I needed focus. I needed to learn a trade because I wasn't a book learner and I also needed discipline. And she gave me all these three things, but man, she was one of the meanest women I've ever known. And that's what I needed at the time. So I have a very fond place in, in my heart for her. Absolutely. I can yeah. say absolutely why. And I think all of us need that. You ever watch the Disney short bow? It's, you should really watch it. It's about this kid who goes with his mom, but it wasn't the touchy feely soft version. It was the tough, what I needed version. Of it. So, so tough love is the most important love sometimes. So I agree. Oh, oh, make with her like there's something you make now that is something inspired by that those days in the kitchen with your grandma my grandmother was cantonese and what i people don't know that cantonese chinese people eat soup with every meal it's a tradition where you would make a soup and you would probably make like a stock like either pork stock or chicken stock primarily and she was a master of making soups so she would roast the bones and roast, um, you know, the, the air. Well, I didn't know what aromatics were. I mean, of course, until I went to culinary school, right? So she would take daikon radish and ginger and all these things. And so I made a very simple pork and um, winter melon soup just a few weeks ago. Because, you know, COVID, this lockdown gives us a lot of anxiety. And I think I just needed a little piece of grandma's soup. I think you and everybody else that bought up all the yeast during the pandemic, everybody was looking for that. <laughs> everybody was looking for that, Jet. Right. Everybody wanted that touch of home and that sense that, hey, it's going to be okay. Yeah. So tell me what it was again. It was basically a lot of Chinese soups are pork stock based. So okay. rib bones or neck bones, you roast those off to make a dark stock, a brown stock. Add some daikon radish, which is an aromatic, some ginger and garlic, which is an aromatic. You cook that down for a few hours, and then you finish soup with the final flavoring, and it's usually a vegetable. And I used winter melon, 
you ever used a winter melon? It's it's a gourd. Never heard of it. Imagine the sweetness of zucchini multiplied by 10. Okay. It's got that earthy sweetness. So basically the final product is just a bowl of soup with riblets and winter melon. And it's a very simple soup. You eat it with rice. Like yesterday's rice put into soup makes a rice porridge of some sort. So I love that. I always put rice in my soup. I always do. And, you know, I always wondered why at every single Chinese restaurant you ever saw, there was always two or three soups. And so now I know. That's it. Cantonese, Chinese, we eat soup with every meal. So on your off day, when you're kicking around L.A., where might we find you for something really delicious? Oh, easy, easy. So we try to eat Langer's pastrami once in a while. We've got the best Mexican food in America here. So between Mariscos, Jaliscos, and yeah, Carnitas Momo. Yeah. So we took Bobby on his tour, this cool little taco tour, and we'll eat Thai food. So between Latin food, Thai food, and some comfort food. So your book, 101 Epic Dishes, the one that you and Allie did together, is not just Asian food. It's all kinds of food, but it's technique driven, not just recipe driven. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. If you've watched me for any length of time, I'm really a fan of teach Amanda fish versus give fishes, right? Like I need to teach someone a fundamental technique like If I teach you how to roast, you can roast anything from a prime rib to vegetables. The beginnings of your roast can turn into a braise. I am all about teaching someone a technique that can be translated throughout their entire cooking repertoire. It's very culinary school light. So you're going to be able to walk away reading this book going, oh my God, like I get how chefs think about food and that'll make you faster. That'll make you more efficient. That'll just make you a better cook. That's the goal. I do remember hearing you say in an interview somewhere that there are really only two kinds of cooking techniques. Tell us about that. There's two types of heat that you apply to food, period. This is the Bible. You're either dry heat or you're moist heat. So dry heat is roasting, grilling, sauteing, baking, and then there's deep frying, believe it or not. And there's moist heat. There's braising, boiling, steaming. So if you can start to separate fundamental techniques into just kind of categories, I think it just makes you a better cook. Now, there's a combination where braising is where you brown something first and then you add a liquid later. And once you start understanding what each of those techniques does to the food, it makes your food better. Right. After that, it's seasoning. Yeah, I think a lot of people miss that about the braise, you know, making sure you get it good and brown and that that's where the flavor develops. Because if you just put something in liquid Mm -hmm. and cook it, it's not a very appealing looking thing and you haven't really developed a lot of rich flavor. I always used to wonder why my mother would sear off like the pot roast before she would put it in there. I'm like, why do you have to do that? You're just going to stick it in the oven and cook it, you know, in that Dutch oven. Why are we have to cook it first. She said, that's where you get the flavor. And your grandma and my mother didn't know the science behind it, but they knew it was important. That's right. And that's hopefully we can impart a little of the science and the whys, you know what I mean? So I think I know the answer to this, but if you weren't a chef, you'd be a teacher, right? No, no, no. What would you be? I'd be a police officer in the military. What? Jet, do you know I used to be a police officer? No way. Were you really? Oh, yes. <laughs> that is amazing. My brother's a police officer. So I wondered where the tie-in to the canine organization was. I saw you post something about that recently. Jet's got a charity he supports. It's called Canines for Warriors, mm-hmm. and it helps soldiers, military personnel right. with PTSD 
rehabilitate and rejoin and, and get some sort of normalcy to their life through a canine companion. Tell us a little bit about that charity, Jet. When I was a kid, I was surrounded by a bunch of guys that either were military or police, and they all went off and either did one or the other. And I always kind of felt I was missing out. So as I established myself in my career, my mission is always to support military and police organizations and charities. So Canines for Warriors does what you say. They try to save both human and canine. They take shelter dogs, train them up to be service animals. Oh, wow. So you're saving the dog and you're hopefully helping the vet. You know, when these vets come back, the ones that we help are either have PTSD or military sexual trauma or traumatic brain injury. And that's what Canines for Warriors is all about. And then the other one is Spike's Canine Fund. My buddy, Jimmy Hatch, is a retired uh, Navy SEAL. And he basically raises money to make sure dogs that are police working dogs have bulletproof vests. So Spike's Canine Fund or, or, or Canines for Warriors... And these are all my buddies. These challenge coins all come from different soldiers from around the world. Okay. So what is your most popular recipe? Like, what are the ones that people ask you about the most? God, I think I'm known best for drunken noodles. Okay. While I was chefing in Las Vegas, Jada came through and wanted to put my drunken noodles on that best thing I ever ate show. So that helped me. That for sure is probably what I'm most known for. Give us a quick rundown on drunken noodles for somebody who's never had it. Yeah, for sure. You know, they're the the Chinese wide soft noodles. Love them. But they're a Thai take on them. So chili, I like shrimp. Flavor is sweet, salty, spicy, and with a really large hit of basil at the end. And the Thai basil is very different than that regular like um, basil. It tastes more like a licorice, doesn't it? It's a very strong licorice taste. Yeah, it's an anise taste for sure. But, you know, I don't like black licorice and I love Thai basil. So when you bend it, it with chili and fish sauce and all those Asian flavors, it really is becomes nice. As you say that, I'm thinking there's always something in Thai food if it's done right. And I can never quite pinpoint what it is, like a flavor. And now that you say that, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's because it was licorice. Yeah. Thai people are masters of herbs. So every culture has its own mastery. And Thai people, we master herbs. So between lemongrass and Thai lime leaves and galanga, we have this plethora of herbs that really we, we understand very well. That's what that thing is when you're like, what is it? It could be any of those herbs that we really understand. And you have a recipe for the best Pad Thai ever. And of course, Pad Thai is my favorite of all Thai food. So tell me how I'm going to make the best Pad Thai ever. Can I get that recipe somewhere? For sure. Yeah. You could just go to chefjet.com and take it or go to our Food Network show, Ready Jet Cook, and you'll learn how to make it step by step. Okay. So it's online. I can watch it. It is. It is. Just Google Ready Jet Cook. It's uh, You know, we got a James Beard and Emmy nom for that show, and it's a tiny little digital show. So we're really proud of it. The secret to Pad Thai is tamarind. Oh. Straight up. It really just this, this fruit that grows in Thailand around the equator. It's got this deep sweetness and sourness to it. If you back that up with, again, vinegar fish sauce and you use dried shrimp, if you can get it, there's these little hallmark ingredients that make pad thai perfect and dried shrimp is one of them because when you take bay shrimp and you ferment it a little bit it creates even more umami and savoriness out of it so yeah i'm gonna have to watch that episode and then i'll have to then i have to get online and order all those ingredients because you know they're not gonna have them down here at the local piggly wiggly yeah exactly but (laughs) in this day and age finally in alabama you're gonna be able to find it and you just gotta wait two or three days and you'll be able to find everything you've recently been exploring all these crazy 
squashes and different kinds of fruits. I don't even know what they are. I've never even heard of most of them. Like you said a minute ago, winter melon. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of that. Yeah. Never heard of it. So I think it's fun to, I think people, you know, want to, are, are always wanting to learn. Right. Yes. And my job is to demystify everything. So I want to bring green ingredients like jackfruit and mangosteens and rambutans to the forefront. So I'm going to keep doing that series. So I think it's great. Yeah. Uh, and and if you're ever going to be on Chopped, you better follow along because uh, right? he will help you before you ever get there. He'll help you learn what those crazy things are going to put in that basket. Yeah. And be it Alabama or New York or L.A. I mean, grocery stores are getting there. They're getting everything from around the world. So we want you to come to our channel, learn about something and go out and explore and have fun and eat something or cook something. Well, on that note, I want to tell you how much we appreciate you being on with us today. Chef Jet Tila, you are a treasure and a wealth of information. We can't wait to see what you're up to do next. And for those of you listening, go pick up a copy of his book, 101 Epic Dishes, Cooking 101, basically. He's going to help you learn and give you techniques that you can transfer from recipe to recipe. Jet, thank you again. And thank you for looking out for our veterans and our police officers. That's real important to me. So I appreciate that. You bet, Marty. Thanks for having me on the show. The best to you, your family, and your audience. Uh, Keep doing what you do. Jet Tila is a Food Network star and cookbook author. His latest book with his wife, Allie, is 101 Epic Dishes, recipes that teach you how to make the classics even more delicious. You can find it at your favorite bookstore, and you can find a selection of recipes on his website, chefjet.com. Jet is just like it sounds, J-E-T. You can also find him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next week on the show, we meet culinary television royalty. You probably know him best from his long-running series with the legendary Julia Child. I talked with Chef Jacques Pepin and his daughter Claudine about his new cookbook and their family traditions. At that time, she stood there and I said, okay, give me a spoon. Okay, give me that. Help me wash the salad. Okay, take her to the garden. I said, get me some parsley. No, that's chive. Taste it. No, that's parsley. That's chive. That's tarragon. And then take her to the market. And in the market, they get me some pear. Make sure they are ripe. Did you smell them? You think they are ripe? Those tomatoes, you think they are ripe? Come back to the house, and she helped me in the kitchen. It is my great honor to talk to both of them, and it's going to be a great conversation. Subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss it. Don't forget, you can find thousands of recipes, meal ideas, and cooking how-tos from the world's largest community of cooks at allrecipes.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast was recorded in Birmingham, edited in Atlanta, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Homemade is produced by All Recipes with executive editor Jason Burnett. Thanks to our Pod People production team, Rachel King, Eliza Lambert, Tanya Ott, and Maya Croft. Thanks for listening. I'm Marty Duncan, and this is Homemade.